Welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. How about that? That's the old-fashioned cold entry, just with the music. No clever starter pointy places or interesting thought-provoking teasers to get you to listen. I don't have to. You're going to love this podcast. I don't even have any worries about it. Welcome, my friends, to the Pre-Accident Podcast, home of the uh, brave and the true and people who are not afraid and know their way around a donut. I had an Uber driver yesterday, actually. I had an Uber driver who said the phrase, that boy calls a duck a duck. I just think that's a really, I don't say that enough. You know what I like about you? You're the kind of person that would call a duck a duck. So there you are calling ducks ducks, just right and left like crazy. I'm glad you're on the podcast. Today is interesting because today is a part two podcast of the, uh, I'm calling it the, uh, the, the Drew Ray period that we're having on the pre-accident podcast. So I interviewed Drew uh, when we were together for the, uh, uh, for, for a meeting, big meeting. And, uh, and it ended up being two podcasts. And, and I, I, I just didn't want to throw this one away because this podcast this is really meta, so buckle your seatbelts, kids. This podcast is a podcast about a podcast, which we've done before, so that shouldn't scare you too much. But I, I got really interested in asking Drew about disaster cast, which has just kind of gone away. I mean, it doesn't even really exist. I mean, it exists. You can listen to them, and probably many of you have, but there's not many new additions to it for a long time. And, and Drew since started this new podcast. So I don't see disaster cast actually ever coming back to, to production or whatever you call it of a podcast doing that. But anyway, so I started talking to him about it and, uh, and it, it just became a really interesting conversation, which I want to share with you, but it became so much more than just a conversation about disaster cast. It really became a conversation about, the new view and personalities that were involved in the new view and what's that, what's that like? And, uh, I, I just find this podcast incredibly interesting. I think you will too, actually. I'm very excited to play for it. I, I probably would not have saved this, um, just cause there's been a lot of stuff recently and, and there's plenty of content, but, but I don't know. It just, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm going to pop this one in kind of randomly. I'll wait a while, which is kind of what's happened here. And then I'm going to randomly pop this in and see what you guys think. Because giving you the opportunity to listen to it, that solves multitudes of problems. Because now you get to be the arbiter, the judge of, uh, of what's going on and what you think this has to say to you. I, I can't even wait for you to hear it. So whatever you're doing, driving or walking or or hanging out or sitting on a plane, whatever you're doing, you, know, you guys do all sorts of crap when you listen to this podcast. Sit back and listen to this one, but listen for the story inside the story. You're going to hear the story of, of Disaster Cast. You'll hear that right away. But listen to the story inside the story and how the world in which we're hanging out, the world of high reliability and this, this kind of new safety, how that world is changing. So here is a conversation between myself and Dr. Drew Ray from Griffith University. 
And I think you'll find this conversation interesting at every single level. So sit back and enjoy. Bon Appetit. Big problem. So what happened to Disaster Cat? I've got to know. People want to know. Drew Ray, what happened to Disaster Cat? There, there are two things that happened to Disaster Cat. The first one is our research program became successful and fun. <laughs> and so instead, instead of taking out my frustrations uh, the rest of my life on writing DisasterCast, I actually got to run the project that I wanted to run. And that may be the best answer ever. I mean, that, that's really, it's a hard, that, you can't argue with that answer. That's a brilliant answer. Well, there, there is another side to it, which is my life now is mainly managing my research team. And that takes away some of the fun again because other people are getting out to go, to go, right. to go out into the field They're and research the cool stuff, stuff yeah. and find out cool things. And I get to hear the stories. I get to sit in the middle of the spider web they, when they come back in and say, hey, Drew, this is really cool. And I get to ask the questions and say, look, I, yeah, sure, that's cool, but I'm wondering about this. Yeah. And they go and find out. Yeah, and they go out and look. So have you thought about morphing disaster casts into less episodic one disaster per uh, podcast into more of a maybe a discussion of what Drew Ray's thinking being in the middle of the spider web? I do not – I was about to say I do not like pontificating. But the I'm, sad, the I'm sad, sorry. The sad fact <laughs> is I love pontificating. I was going to say. But I'm very – Worried and annoyed at myself for doing that. Um, I look at people who put themselves into the position of guru, and it it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable that people listen too much to their conclusions and not enough to how they've got to that point. And it's self-reinforcing because it starts to be the only thing that they say people then take up and affirm and I am worried that I'm already so arrogant that being in a totally affirming spiral will just lead me into the worst side of myself. The, the worst possible Drew that there can be. Well, I, I kind of feel the same thing. Like, I've become recently offended by people who call their stuff master classes. That just seems incredibly arrogant. It, it, it bugs me. I don't know why, but it bugs me. It's not a humble name, but it is a name which sells classes. It sell, I suppose it sells classes. I mean, it's, yeah, you're right. That's a good way to look at it. And I say that as someone who started calling our classes master, master classes. classes because they sell. Do they really? It just seems so, it's, I don't know, master of what? Well, so do you see it? Do you see a few? I mean, so I think podcasts are really important. I would. We're on a podcast. So first of all, I'm going to say that. But DisasterCast was really an early podcast in this area that actually had pretty good – it's got good traction. It did, it did well. I, I also am a big believer in Marshall McLuhan notion that the medium is the message, that, that, that books are great and academic papers are amazing and, and these are vital. They're very important. But the vast majority of people seem to consume information in a different way uh, through, through podcasts video clips, that kind of stuff. And so it seems like it's more and more important to find other ways to disseminate the ideas that you're thinking of in your head, Drew, because you've got plenty of ideas thinking in your head. And the podcast is kind of an interesting way to do that. 
Is it legitimate? Are you, are you okay with it? You must be. You did one. Uh, so D- Disaster Cast, I loved for what it did to me, that it made me think about how to express my ideas and how to follow up. And if nothing else, I believe strongly that safety practitioners should be disaster literate. Um, I believe that without evidence. And in fact, that's something I'm curious about as to whether this is a true belief or just something I've made up. So on my list of research studies I want to do is a like, study of how many disasters do people know about and what lessons do they take from them and what does that do for how they practice safety. God, that's super interesting. Um, that's super, super I never even thought of that. That's super interesting. But it wasn't until I started Disaster Cast that I realized how safety literate I wasn't in that I would go and do an episode on a disaster and make sure I'd done my homework. And every time I learned stuff that I didn't know about the basic facts of the disaster, let alone ways to think about it. And when I say the basic facts, I mean things that totally changed my perspective on what was in the web of courses. Um, Stuff that was even in the original accident reports that just doesn't make it into the popular culture. We tell these stories about accidents that get recycled and recycled and um, so much of the stuff gets lost in that recycling. That's that's so interesting that this idea of being disaster literate I hadn't thought of, but it's it seems when you say it, it seems really relatively important. I mean, if what's the quote? If we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat history. Yeah, I, 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 there's a couple of better versions of that. Like, if we don't learn from history, we're sort of dest- I, I, I've I've lost the really cool way of saying it. The sad thing it's basically we sort of create like mirror copies. Of yeah, it. it's not repeating history. It's different versions of it. Of, of kind of the, the, I like the idea of mirror copy. It's sad, Drew, because I live in Santa Fe, and I live really close to the to the archives, the really important archives in the United States uh, on the Southwest. And that quote is painted on the side of the building in probably three foot tall letters, and I can't remember it. That's sad. <laughs> that's really so. That's a sad reflection on me. Well, that idea. That idea has spun, and you're thinking about actually doing another type of podcast now, yeah? Fair enough? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so I'm being strongly pushed into this, and he's going to be my partner. So what is, what, is strong, yeah, what is strongly pushed mean? You have to give me a little – like I'm kind of pushing you now, so. Uh, so oh, plenty of people have pushed me to restart DisasterCast, which is sitting down with coffee, coffee and saying, when is the next episode of DisasterCast? So what David Proven did is sat me down at a desk with a microphone between us and a script. Uh, let's start a podcast, and we're doing it. You're doing it right now. Uh, so, yeah, we've recorded a bank of episodes that's as soon as we've got enough stacked up with good enough sound quality, getting right. sound quality on a podcast. What are you guys going to call it? Uh, we're going to call it the Safety of Work podcast. Oh, nice. Um, and that comes from a paper we co-wrote, The Safety of Work versus Safety Work. Nice. And it's this idea that we want to explore that link between stuff safety practitioners do, safety work, and the safety of work, the outcome. And the idea is that we're going to look at what is the evidence. So each episode, unlike DisasterCast, where I had to do a bunch of research, each episode will pick one paper that we think is interesting from academia that says something worthwhile about how to do practice. And then we'll talk about it. We'll talk about how the research was done, you know, why the research was done, what questions it was answering, and what can usefully be taken away you know, from it. God, it seems brilliant. And it seems really um, 
it's, not only is it brilliant, the opportunity for us to go on that ride with you guys is really special. Plus, it's 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 kind of efficient. I mean, you're going to do all the work for me. You just kind of expose me to the good ideas. Oh, and and ride with us is exactly what we're hoping will be good for us. Because every episode, David and I are going to have to both read a paper carefully yeah. and think about how it was done and what does it mean. And we'll have a conversation. Um, and often these are really interesting because I come from the, like, was the research rigorously conducted side? So David will put a paper in front of me and say, this is really interesting. I'll say, yeah, it's interesting, but it's crap. <laughs> and then I'll take something I think, this is really interesting. And David will say, yeah, but what does it mean? What do we do with this? Yeah, how do, how do we make it go? Wow, that's... What a great idea is that by doing this little conversation you guys have, it kind of makes you co-create this collective new use of this paper. That's really clever. I, I think that's a great – if you have enough coffee, that would be a brilliant way to spend an hour every Tuesday morning. Yeah, and, and th- this is something that I've been aiming for myself is I want to put something where I learn stuff yeah. as a routine into my life. Yeah. Um, I do it with podcasts, and podcasts are like – really easy way. You just put the buds in your ears and yeah. get on with something else and information drip feeds. Yeah, and if you're bored, you go to sleep, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, they don't ask very much. That's, that's amazing because that's the one thing I can tell you, at least in my experience with doing a podcast, is that I, I'm, I like doing it because I always learn something. I mean, I always, I, I always learn something. Talking to people is super interesting and having the time to actually talk specifically about this stuff is, is really pretty cool. It's pretty fun. Yeah. And, and it's, I guess, putting our own activity to the same test we place on other people because we've both been griping about how not enough safety practice is evidence-based. Right. Um, and we blame both academics and practitioners for that. Uh, safety academics don't make their stuff consumable, so that's part of what we want to do right. is make stuff consumable, right. even if we have to do that conversion step. Right. But also practitioners do stuff that there is actually evidence that speaks about it. And they're just not aware that there's evidence there. Yeah. And, and I think it goes back to the first part that we've made the academic literature almost, almost non-consumable for the practitioner. It's hard to get. It's hard to understand. It's incredibly academic. It's incredibly jargony. Um, and oftentimes it's, it's minuscule, minuscule little phenomena that we're looking at with a double secret electron microscope and doesn't have a lot of value. You guys sitting and talking about it gives it life. It breathes a whole new opportunity into how research can be diffused into the community. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll give you a particular example that I feel really guilty about, actually. Really? Okay, this could um, be good, you guys. Sit so back. We're calling this the Safety of Work podcast. And it comes from a discussion we had that turned into a paper called Safety, Safety of Work versus the Safety of Work. I can't remember which order that's in. Which I have been told back to me is one of the least readable papers I've ever written. And I went back and looked at it, and they're absolutely right. Um, in that paper, we were trying to create a simple message for practitioners, which is let's put two different names for these things that we call safety. Um, instead of just talking about safety, let's split it up and say there's safety, which is the stuff we do, and there's safety, which is the stuff we're trying to achieve. Nice, simple, clear message. Ought to have gone in a LinkedIn post. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the paper, we were trying to make it rigorous. So we started to draw on some really deep sociological theory about how organizations work. 
And we presented the paper with that theory, uh, in theory of institutions, as the backdrop to this idea that we were presenting. And the result is that what started as a simple, clear idea is now much more rigorous, but it's also impenetrable. Right. You can't right. read the paper without reading our background literature review that goes into sociology of organizations. Wow. And safety practitioners don't actually care about that. Or, or, Peer reviewers care about that. Yeah, or don't even get much value from that, right? Um, I mean, I think it's really important for other academics. It's really important if you're going to build on this work that we've done, that you do understand it in its depth and complexity and its scientific roots so that you can build on those roots to go further. Where are the other, but if you want to put it into practice, you know, Where are the other academic programs that, that you guys – where are your peers? Oh, that is a good question. Our peers, as far as I can tell, are mostly PhD students who are starting to pick up the type of stuff that we're talking about. And um, we sort of subtly like grab students of other supervisors who are much more in the traditional safety science vein. And we sort of re-indoctrinate them from the side by giving them... We try not to like give them advice that's contrary to their supervisors, but we challenge them to... Particularly any time some... Like, I get people write to me saying, you know, I'm doing this thing on safety culture. I want to know your opinion. Or they'll put, like, a survey of other academics on the topic they're doing, and I sort of write back saying, look, okay, this is great, but your research question is 30 years out of date. Um, and I give them a bunch of stuff to read. Um, so, yeah, our, our, our peers are often people younger than us just because we come from a generation where we ourselves weren't as rigorous as we should have been. Right. Um, and, yeah, I don't want to name names. No, 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 no. Sprinkles, no. It's sprinkled in universities around the world. Any safety department, you'll find one or two people who are really starting to question not just current safety thought but current ways of doing safety research. Which is exciting. I mean, it's, it's the slow diffusion is going to be interesting. It'll, it, it's, I, people ask me all the time where, where to go, what to do, where to study. I mean, it's hard. It's, they're, they're difficult it's difficult to identify a place that's that's really uh, attractive and you can bring them in. But there are some, but they're pretty far away from each other. Yeah, and the question of how of where to do research if you're a young researcher is very specific to your individual circumstances with citizenship, where you can get visas, where you can get right. money from. Right. Um, I will say, since you've basically given me a pass to give a plug here, a little bit, we got space for PhD students, and Australia is a good place. Yeah. Australia does give scholarships to international students and I think, in. And I think your program is really amazing, right? I mean, it's challenging and interesting, and you guys are moving forward, and you don't really rest very much. And we do real work with real organizations, what kind which of, I think is attractive. What kind of commitment person. would that be if I went over as a student? I'm not going to. I'm, I'll never get another PhD. <laughs> I can pretty much damn sure assure you that'll never happen again, but... I've never actually understood why anyone would end up with two PhDs. Well, I can't. It's just that's crazy. I mean, you you must hate yourself a lot to do it twice. That's all I would say. You know, just just why? What does it give you? Nothing. Um, but yeah, you you want to do a PhD in Australia? You're talking about three years of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about taking on a stipend, which is enough to live on if you're a new grad. Very hard to start a family on. Um, you know, thirty thousand a year Australian dollars. That that's paid to you. That's not what you pay. Um, and then your fees are taken care of as part of that. Right. But right. that's that's the typical deal. Is live on a very low paid. Salary How many students can you take a year? Well, how big are your cohorts? 
a PhD student, so it's very much an apprenticeship type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each individual is treated differently. Uh, at the moment in the lab, we've got three part-time PhD students. So these are people who have jobs and do PhDs um, basically on the side with support from their employers. Often you know, their own organization is the organization they're getting data from. Right, because that's um, a really elegant way to get data. Yeah. And the num- number of full-time PhD students, students in the lab drifts up and down. Um, right at the moment, we've just pushed one out the door, so we're hitting at zero just at the moment. Uh, but it sort of floats up anywhere from zero to three and back down as they complete their projects, graduate, yeah. new ones come in. Well, it's kind of exciting that you have opportunities. That, that's really a, a good way to think of it. Yeah, the, the hard thing is finding researchers who like the way we approach safety and who aren't interested in telling the world how to do stuff, but are just curious. Um, so every time you know, we, academics get inquiries about PhD all the time, all the time, most of them don't pan out. Right. But the first thing I always write back is, don't tell me what you know, don't give me your CV, don't tell me what topic you want to study. Give me a question. Yeah. Right. What's something that you want to know and want to know important enough that it's worth devoting three years of your life to? That's brilliant. Do you, do you get pretty good responses? We do. Um, you, you asked me before about you know how many people are curious. Most people, if really pushed, can come up with something that they actually genuinely want to find out. And often, often when you're there sort of pushed, they realize actually no, safety is not what they're curious about. Maybe it's something to decide. Yeah, you know, what they're really curious about is how organizations work or individual psychology. Or, right, right. Um, Which is good to know. I mean, that's that's good knowledge as well. Knowing what to not study is probably just as valuable as knowing what to study. Yeah. Um, but yeah, often you safe. Sometimes we get safety practitioners who are just so frustrated that they've gone from frustration to becoming curious. You start knowing stuff. You tell people to do it. You realize that you're telling them stuff that you're not sure about yourself. You wonder what the truth is. You become a researcher because you come back around to determine what the truth is. Yeah, others are just younger people, often from grounded in another field, psychology, sociology, um, who sort of realise that actually there's some really interesting ways to apply that thinking inside safety. It's, it gives you something. Your understanding an organisation is massively complex. So there's yeah. a there's a real fear. Well, first of all, nothing truer has ever been said than what you just said. Understanding that an organization is massively complex is brilliant. There's a real, fear is the wrong word, Drew. There's a real potential that this podcast you're starting could actually increase interest in becoming a PhD in safety science. I mean, talking about these papers in such a way may actually set a little fire under some people. This could be really positive. I would certainly take that as a positive outcome. I'd love it. Oh, absolutely. Um, on the other hand, when people realize just how limited each individual slice of research is and how some of those big questions you have to break down into stuff that is really, really tiny before you can get a good answer, that does turn people away sometimes. Um, your academia is a particular way of looking at the world. It's not for everyone to devote. You, everyone can be curious. Everyone can do research. I think every safety practitioner should be doing research in their own organization. That's what safety practice is. I agree. Is ethnographic investigation yeah, of your own organization and reporting it back. And kind of a Margaret Mead method, participant observer sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, you're right. And to go from you know, that to actually I want that to be my whole job, that, that's a shift that is the right move for some people. And other people want to have that put in the practical, telling people how to do stuff and doing it themselves. Right. 
But I think the idea of you two guys sitting down talking about a paper each episode, that's appealing. I mean, I, I can only tell you I see no downside to this. I think it would be fun for, for us to listen to. I actually think it's going to be really fun for you guys to do. And I think every single episode moves the entire industry forward, moves the entire uh, in sort of a Thomas Kuhn phrase, the invisible college forward. I industry seemed like the wrong word. Yeah. But it moves the the invisible college forward. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, we haven't recorded an episode yet where one of us hasn't asked the other. Does that surprise you? Yeah, because it's because you're co-creating that meaning collectively. That's really, that's pretty good. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Perhaps I'll have you both on the pre-accident podcast. Well, I know what I'll do. We'll put your first one out. That is pre-accident. That is generous, and oh, I'm glad to do it. Yeah, our first one actually doesn't follow the model. Our first one, which I think, like a lot of podcasts, is, is a podcast about why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. yeah, let's put out the second one then. Okay. Yeah, the second one is actually a sample of what you'd expect from a normal episode. It'd be the way to go. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, this will be fun. This will be really exciting. I'm I'm so pleased you're doing it. I'm just pleased you do what you do anyway, but I'm really pleased you're doing this. I, I feel guilty that Disastercast has stopped, and I miss it from my life doing the podcasting, so I'm glad to have something back. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if guilty's that. I don't think I, I would want you to feel guilty. I, I actually think Disastercast really did something important, and that is it, it, it increased the collective disaster fluency of the community, right? Yeah, that's I'd, what, hope, I'd hope so. Yeah. That's what you wanted it to do. It probably, it, maybe it did exactly what it needed to do, which is set up this next podcast to actually move us in a direction where we're looking at contemporary research, journal articles that are super interesting, and having two guides sort of through conversation walk us through it. I think it sounds cool. We'll see. Thank you, man. I appreciate cool. it. A podcast about so much more than just podcasting. <laughs> Did you hear the underlying tones? I don't know. See what you think. I thought it was really interesting. You know, of course, if you listen, that I've already interviewed the guys on on the new Safety of Work podcast. So this is a little out of order. But I wanted to throw this in the mix just because I there's a lot going on here other than the story of the podcast and my benevolent butt kissing at the end. Because I am kind of a giant Drew Ray fan. You would be, if you've not met him, it'd be hard not to love him. He's a lovable sort, that's for sure. And, uh, and, and fun, really fun indeed. So that's the cast. That is the podcast for today. Thank you for being a part of this. It means so much to me that you listen to this crap. Uh, thank you. And our numbers are nuts. Nuts, man. Nuts. I'll tell you, nuts. No uh, short... Um, Shorting of of Safety FM, which has really popped the numbers up even higher, which makes the numbers even more gigantic. So thank you. It, it's it's surprising and a treat, and I'm glad, and I think about it a lot. It's because I think about you a lot. Can't do it without you. So have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>